Hello, my name is Dave Gonzalez, and I haven't read any of the books in George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. I'm Joanna Robinson. I've read every book in George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. And I'm Neil Miller, and I have also read all of those books. We are headed back to Westeros to cover the Game of Thrones spinoff series, House of the Dragon. We'll be answering your questions, so send us a raven at trialbycontent at gmail.com. Take some bread and salt and join us Thursdays on the Trial by Content feed. And don't worry, you're safe. The Reigns of Castamere hasn't even been written yet. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line is my producer Kaya McMullen. Hi Kaya. Hi Chris. No Andy today, but that's okay because we have a very long, very good, I mean not good like because I'm good at it, but good because our guests were good. Very good interview with Mickey Down and Conrad Kay, the creators of Industry. We're going to talk a little bit about episodes four and five and we're going to do it in London, England. That's where I was, not just to see those guys, although it was a true thrill to hang out with them uh, and get to talk to them in person. But we wanted to continue this sort of season-long conversation with those guys, and I wanted to take advantage of being in the same city as them. So they came on down to the Spotify offices in London, and I chatted with them. That was really awesome. Before we get into that, though, how are you? You know, people want to know how you are. Me? Yeah. (laughs) Um, I'm great, you know, just enjoying the remaining days of summer in Los Angeles, watching some industry. I'm back on my um, survivor kick. I took a little bit of time off, but I'm back in now. Um, Are you doing the seasons chronologically? No, no. I'm kind of just like hopping around. Just watched uh, David versus Goliath. Um, Going back to Survivor Redemption Island, which is not as good, but, you know, still entertaining. And yeah, that's about it. I am also watching Anatomy of a Scandal, which is interesting. Is it interesting? I I heard it was horrendous. Was it? Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm only two episodes in, so I'm like reserving any like very harsh criticism. That's very even handed Um, of you. Yeah. But they do. They are like heavy on the use of flashbacks and all the flashbacks are shot in like the, because it's David E. Kelly. So it's shot in like the big little lies style of flashback where it's like all hazy and weird, but big little lies only did that like occasionally. And I would say like for this show, it's closer to like one fourth of an episode is flashbacks. So, you know, time. So not the highest recommendation from (laughs) Kaya McMullet and industries, but Kaya, do you know what, if you were looking for something to watch, Mm Hmm. Most people, I mean, usually I'd be like, listen to the Watch Podcast because we talk about TV. Like <laughs> That is where I get the bulk of my TV recommendations. We sometimes recommend a show like once a month, but there's a new kid on the block and it's The Ringer's streaming guide. So right. Andrew Grotadaro and the team over at The Ringer put together like a truly like awesome product, like something that I have already started using pretty routinely. It's a super comprehensive streaming guide where you can find um, recommendations, Kind of keep track of the streaming wars and find out which each one of the services are playing. You can find movies, which is actually really crucial because like there's just as much streaming movies being made these days as I feel like there are TV shows. And it's really good to get the big picture list and be like, oh, okay, so this orphan prequel is actually pretty good or whatever, the sequel. 
and check those th- that stuff out. There's even a tab for like the rewatchables if you're looking for some of the movies that we talk about on that podcast and find out where it's streaming. So like Goodfellas is on Netflix and this is on HBO Max and yada, yada, yada. So that's really, really convenient. The thing that I love about it also is as there's just tons of stuff coming out every week, the Ringer Streaming Guide is going to be constantly updated. So there's a reason to go back to it every day, if not every week. I just sent in a list to Andrew today. They've got basically, um, uh, it's more or less like what's essential to watch right now list that's going to be changing every week and try to capture sort of the combination of uh, critical darlings, popular picks. And the thing is, Kai, there's also a huge reality TV section in there where the reality, the ring of reality gang are curating all the reality TV stuff that's going on right now. I have to tell you, I, I was going to save this for when me and Andy do our like European vacation catch-up sesh, but I got obsessed with a British reality show called A Place in the Sun. Oh, It was just like basically always on when I was in my hotel. And it's about uh, English people who are trying to buy condominiums in like Mallorca or different Ooh. seaside Spanish towns. Right. Okay. And it, I like that. It's so long. I mean, it's only an hour, but it just basically feels like she shows them some condo that's like kind of weirdly dark and okay. in a complex and has like a bad pool. And she's like, what do you lot think? And then, <laughs> and then, and then they just like kind of haggle over the price for a while and talk about how they had hoped to have a sun deck. Right. And at the course. end, they just buy one of the condos. But it is kind of funny just to see Brits marauding in, in Mallorca and in different Spanish towns. So that's... That's not necessarily a recommendation. It's more of an anthropological (laughs) observation. I highly recommend using the uh, the Ringer Streaming Guide. When I sent in my list to Andrew for, basically it's supposed to reflect next week's TV or the the coming week's TV, uh, I made sure that I put a show on there that I think you would like too. Okay. And if you have any homework for these coming days, this is your assignment. Great. All right. I don't usually get homework on the watch, but I know (laughs) when I do it, take it very seriously. It's like, this is like your job. It's kind of like the homework. Uh, I would just, I I am assigning to you to check out bad sisters on Apple TV. So this comes from Sharon Horgan, who, as if you listen to this podcast, you know what a big fan I am of basically everything she's ever done, uh, including motherland, which showed up on my top 10 list, I guess last year. This show is like a different look from her to some extent. You know, she's known for this very acerbic comedy that she also like roots very much in in very real human drama. This is almost like a little pulpy in the best possible way. If I had to, and I've seen other people make this comparison, but if I had to sum it up, I would say it's like Big Little Lies meets Fargo uh, set in Ireland. So it's about uh, a group of sisters who are very, very, very close and uh, this, basically the premise is, is that one of the sisters is married to an absolute bastard. And at the end of the first episode, without putting too fine a point on it, because it's basically in the trailer, that bastard, said bastard, dies. And the okay. sisters are responsible. It, you get the impression that the sisters are responsible. And the mystery is like, what happened to this guy? Who did it? Who done it? So it's got that big little lies kind of like mystery to it, but it's got a really great sense of humor. Eve Hewson is in it. Uh, Amory Duff is in it, but Sharon Horgan is like the star of the show. And uh, Brett Baer and Dave Finkel, who used to work on New Girl, kind of show run this show uh, and, and kind of co-wrote some of the episodes with with Sharon Horgan, but it's unmistakably Sharon Horgan. It's unmistakably that like just really witty, really, really good. And I actually like has like the big little lies stuff where you're like, Oh, I really like looking at like what people are wearing and like what, how their houses are interior designed. Like, I'm like, is this the richest person in Ireland? How the fuck do they have this? Like (laughs) this furniture? Uh, It's really, really fun to watch. It's been, I think three episodes are up and the fourth goes up on Friday. So okay, cool. Very, very, very enjoyable watch. I checked out the patient. All right. Not personally in therapy right now. So I can't <laughs> speak to the sort of uh, reality of it. But so this show is Steve Carell and Domhnall Gleeson. It's essentially a two-hander, at least of the episodes that have gone up so far. I'm not sure if we're going to get a lot of other characters in there. And the premise is, again, in the trailer... Uh, Steve Carell is treating Donald Gleason. Steve Carell's a therapist. Donald Gleason's come to him and he wakes up one day and Donald Gleason has kidnapped him and chained him to a bed in a house somewhere and is like, okay, now we're really going to do this therapy. Here's the thing about this. 
I'm very, I, I'm very curious about this show. Okay, so it's okay. Like I, I am, I am intrigued. But I, so the episodes are 20 minutes long. Oh, interesting. And I think it's really well, short. Routinely, Andy and I have been like, the thing about this show too is that it's only 20 minutes. <laughs> Thank God. Because, you know, I just think that with the volume of television, when you get something that's so concise like that, there's something about these episodes so far that feel like it's like half a sentence. And okay. while I appreciate the brevity and I think it's a creative way of doing it, and I actually quite like how they're kind of trying to jam a thriller into this newish format of what if we did a 22-minute uh, drama or comedy. I'm not so sure that this style of story works for that. Now, I think only two episodes have gone up. I'm not sure how Hulu is going to be releasing these. This is FX on Hulu. So they're going up kind of like, maybe they'll put up another two, but yeah, yeah. just 20 minutes is like, okay, I've just gotten comfortable on the couch by the time this thing is over. Yeah, that's almost like a mini-sode, sort of. How many it episodes? Is a, it is a mini-sode. I mean, we're, we're getting into Quibi territory there. Honestly, yeah, because it's like, even like most like 30-minute comedies, it's going to be like 25 minutes with commercial. Yeah. So 20 minutes is like, doesn't seem like a big difference, but I feel like that is like, that's pretty short. Now, they have some flashbacks. You're getting to figure out a little bit about who Steve Carell's character is and why he maybe is a little bit somber. But, you know, take, for instance, Reservation Dogs this this year. And I know Andy just talked about it recently, so I don't have to belabor the fact that it's just fucking incredible. But I was watching an episode the other night, and it's, it was about 24 minutes. Uh, it was the roofing episode. And I just felt like it was expansive, like both in terms of like the setting and 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 the story that was being communicated and the, the depth of characterization that you were seeing. And yet it was still only like, a, you know, it was less than half an hour. There's something about the way the patient, which is uh, from Fields and Weisberg, who did The Americans, obviously, mm. is a, a big, big Greenwald favorite. And I, I, I did like The Americans. I'm just trolling him usually. Um, it just feels like odd, I guess. And so I'm the jury is still out if I am the jury. Um, I, the jury, so I'm, I'm still out on that one. <laughs> but those are the new things that I was pretty into. You know, obviously, industry is still cooking. Did you get a chance to watch the fifth episode? I am. I'm like a, I'm a weekly on top of it watcher. You get a notification. Yeah. (laughs) Like Monday nights. I'm like, it's industry night. Yeah. Um, Which is like saying something because the bachelor's on right now too. So that is saying something. And then it's like, honestly, with this season of industry, more often than not, you're going to end that episode pretty bummed out. Yeah, yeah, it's not like necessarily a good time right now. (laughs) Uh, I thought that the fifth episode was tremendous partially because it was it felt so different partially because obviously it gets out of london they go to berlin there's a lot of stuff that happens with families in this episode but i thought that the stuff between harper and her brother was extraordinary and uh i was so happy to be able to talk to mickey and conrad about it one of the things that i thought they've done really well this season is reckon with the hard partying that Mm kind of came with the first season now there are hints in the first season with Rob's kind of behavior that that it's going a little over the line, but I think it's been really fascinating to watch Yaz specifically, also Rob specifically, kind of dealing with like how how far you can really push it. Yeah, yeah. Why don't we get into my interview with Mickey and Conrad? Because it is it's a, a longer great one. interview. Hey, um, thanks, Kaya. <laughs> I had a great time listening back to it. And just, Those guys are absolute princes. It was really, really cool of them to come down and talk to me again. And I hope we get to speak with them for the finale. It's been an awesome season of television so far. So check out the Ringer Streaming Guide. Check out Bad Sisters. Dabble with the patient. You, it, it it's only take 20 much minutes. Of, yeah, seriously. You could probably like have it on, on your phone while you do the dishes or something and you get through most of an episode. Not that I am advocating for such a sacrilegious way of watching screen <laughs> content. That's all I got. Andy and I will be back uh, to talk about House of the Dragon. We got we to gotta compare notes on, on international travel, international meals, all sorts of stuff. Kaya, have a great weekend. I hope Thank everybody you. else has a great Labor Day weekend. Everybody stay cool out there. It's going to get a little steamy in Los Angeles, but uh, we'll be back. Don't worry about us. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, 
Then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a thrill. I'm going to be joined here today by Mickey Down and Conrad Kay, our buddies on the watch. No Andy, who's in a Scandinavian country to be named later right now. He's been <laughs> traded to democratic socialism over there, but we're, we're, we're going to make it work with who we've got here today. Conrad, Mickey, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having us. So nice to do this in person. Yeah, this is amazing. Yeah. We've already had more interaction here than usual <laughs> Zooms. I wanted to start talking, well, I want to talk a lot about episode four and five. And generally about season two, but I, we've been really good about like staying on on schedule with the show because I think it's been one of those really great treats to kind of roll it out over the course of a couple of months and not just like kind of binge it and throw it down into the uh, to the the artery in the main line. But I was curious where you guys were doing pods about it. There's other ringer pods like Waz and Jody are doing a pod about it. What's it like, kind of watching? the discourse around the show play out over weeks and weeks and weeks, especially it being the second season. But Mickey, like you're, you know, are you watching it again as people are watching it or is everything kind of like still fresh in your memory? I found myself watching it again, basically as every episode comes out or like watching bits of it just to remind myself. Me and Conrad were talking about this the other day saying it's just been the perfect amount of time before for us to have a little bit of um, distance from it so yeah. we can see it again. And obviously not with totally fresh eyes because I've seen every episode 200 times, <laughs> but with fresher eyes. And it's, it's I, I like watching it along. I mean, like I love the fact that it's linear and that it's not all out at once. I just, I, I love the fact that the discourse is growing. People like you guys are Me talking too. about it. I feel like that's just like the fun of releasing a TV show. Yeah. It, it feels also, it's like so many, you know, 150 people worked on it for, God knows how long, and it feels it's, I don't know, it feels a bit... It's getting its due. Yeah, it's, it's getting its due, but I, I don't even mean the discourse around it. I feel like just parceling out week to week is a bit fairer on, rather than just getting swept away in the tide of all the other stuff, which, of course, is inevitably going to happen to it. But um, no, it's been really, it's, it, it's been great to watch the reaction to it. I love I, seeing people engage with it. Yeah, me too. I, I, the one, the, I think the word you used the last time you spoke about it on the pod, Chris, you talked about the density of it. Yeah. And like me, me and Mick really did, in this season, try and make the episodes... You know, stand up to a lot of rewatching. So the idea that people are starting to talk about it more and like write about it with a little bit more depth—that's obviously thrilling to us because we really did, we really did. You know, we did, did our best to make the episodes as dense and as rewatchable as possible. So the thing that it's really jumped out at me over the last couple of episodes is—I don't, I don't, I don't know if this is like controversial or not—but it's like it's not a finance show anymore; it's a family show. I mean, this season definitely is about family, and. I kind of always thought that the cool part about the first season was you Trojan horsed like a finance show into a millennial show. But then this season, it's like you're Trojan horsing a family drama into a finance show. And the thematic kind of cohesion among all these characters is fascinating. And I was wondering, not whether it was a challenge, but like what were the conversations like in the beginning of the writing of season two, starting to talk about Harper's brother and Yaz's dad and Rob's kind of empty hole where his his sort of familial unit should be. And even like the the different, you know, uh gods that Gus serves in the in this season, making that more in the forefront rather than some of the more uh like financial intrigue. I mean in the first season it was a pretty intent it was intentional for us to just show the the present. Yeah. Um and I think that I think some people found it very hard to hook into the characters because they were thinking, okay, you've you've shown what they're like in this sort of survival atmosphere where they have to basically, you know, get the jobs at the end of this. But what has actually pushed them towards this job in the first place? And that's just because we couldn't show that stuff because we was, you know, it's a very dense show in a world which people don't really understand. So we, there, was a, there was a lot of stuff to basically set up in the first season. And we were, you know, and we were 
trying to make it feel like you've thrown into this world in the same way the grads were and that we weren't going to spend that much time thinking about where they came from. And, you know, obviously me and Conrad had those discussions when we were writing it, but stuff that we just frankly didn't have time for. And we like, there were versions of some of the episodes in season one where we, you know, there was a, we wrote a version um, in outline at one point of Robert going back home. Yeah. Something that actually happens now in season two. And, you know, our collaborators justly said, this is not the sort of stuff you put in the first season of a show where, you know, it's already quite a hard world to, to clip onto. So honestly, like if you get a second season of something, uh, you just want to expand as much as you possibly can and broaden the reach of it. And we thought, okay, you know, we're underneath the skin of the characters a bit and, and their relationship with work. How do we get under their skin properly? How do we actually see where they came from? And that's the joy of doing a second season. You get to to play in arenas where you weren't allowed to in the first one. And we thought that we again, me and Conrad had these things in our head. And we thought, okay, we need to put them on screen now. That was that's a that's a really good point because like people always talk about the characters and they're like, oh, they're really hard to empathize with. Like, are they versions of you and Mickey? Like, they're everything's transactional. They're borderline sociopathic. <laughs> How do you expect people to ever feel anything for these people? And the thing that sounds that, like a very specific Reddit thread. You found. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it's a general consensus. That was I my think. mom actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 Mickey was like, Mickey was, was like, but wait, you know, in private, he says to me, but we love these characters, right? And I was like, yeah, of course. We do. That's we we write them from a place of you know deep affection for them, and then what we realized was that it's because we'd lived with them for so long and written these extensive biographies for them. But like naturally, none of that stuff is on screen. Mm-hmm. So you live with the characters, you build them out, you you talk to the writers about them. So we thought it was we didn't want to. It wasn't as reductive as let's let's provide a bit more of a, an empathetic key into these characters. But like episode five was an episode that we thought it was time to sort of build the building blocks of the why these people are the way they are. Because yeah. I think, you know, a very fair criticism of the show in the first season is, you know, Harper especially was a kind of avatar in a way for a kind of a sort of every man, every woman you could you could project yourself onto an underdog, you know, maybe in some ways a quite tele, televisual trope of a character. And we wanted to build that out into something that was fully rounded and human. And that is, you know, someone like, you know, we wanted to give Mahala, who's, you know, a sensational actress, even more proper emotional stuff to chew on well she's um, not the fuck up in that episode and no. that's the thing and it's like I, so did you know her brother's secret when you wrote the character in the first season or is that something that comes through in between the seasons I guess and that's, that might also be looking under the hood a little bit but I, I'm just curious a little bit of both um, we had many ideas about what her brother had happened to her brother and the best one I think won out I feel like you know, there were. I, I should. I, I. I probably shouldn't shed too much of the process. I'm trying to come because, because as Conrad said, we we wrote quite extensive biographies. But in honesty, we were trying to figure out what the best version of that cat relationship looked like and right. how it would best serve Harper as a character because that is the reason to do it. Absolutely. And again, I mean, very practically, it felt like a story strand which we had to finish. We had to. It felt like if we would we we would be doing the character and the strand of the service if we weren't at some point going to touch on the fact that she had this missing brother, which was a huge part of her biography yeah. in the first season. I mean, it's looming over her in the first season and you're just like, what the fuck is going on with this girl? And, like, and then finally, like, in some ways, I kind of like, it's not like I expected that specific plot revelation. But the thing that was really amazing, if you could talk a little bit about the casting of the brother, he has to do so much in 20 minutes of screen time. Yeah, it's insane. It's mad. He goes from just being like, oh, here's like this anonymous guy who's working in a kitchen somewhere. And then it's like, oh my fucking God, like this is Jesse Pinkman, like mm. playing tennis. Like this is wild. It's yeah. mad. He has to do the full <laughs> gamut of emotion. He has to go from sort of disinterest, sort of feigned disinterest to, you know, the, 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 the very depths of his soul have to be brought out in the space of 20 minutes. And it, yeah. it's, it was a huge undertaking for him. It was a very, very hard character to cast. Actually, we were really worried about it. Yeah. Even as a concept, because we thought, okay, for the reasons that you outlined, it's like, how the hell are we going to find someone that both looks like her and is able to do this? Yeah. And we're in the UK. Yeah. And they're super fraught, emotionally charged scenes that, you know, they go from naught to 100 miles an hour in almost no time at all. And they were, you know, they were super, they were incredibly difficult scenes to edit as well because there was so much, you know, there's a lot of backstory, but you didn't want it to feel too expositional in the dialogue and... It was just, it was, it was that, that, those, that, I mean, that episode was from the, from its very inception, we knew it was a massive swing for the show, um, especially given that there's not a kind of robust, necessarily very robust work storyline through the thing, like the other episodes, not as adrenalized, but, um, we had to do it. We though. had to do it, yeah. And I yeah. mean, there, there was, you know, there was a, the, the thing that we kept circling in the writer's room is like, what is this? Why does she, you know, why does she have a twin and why is he a tennis player? And what is that, what's thematically, what is that relationship saying? Um, and then, you know, we thought, that that whole episode, if you unpack it, Robert going to meet this sort of hyper ambitious girl at Oxford, 
him basically on the verge of becoming a, you know, a pro tennis player and then walking away from it. It's all about the sort of cost of that unbridled ambition, the emptiness of success, and then the, the whole idea of like hyper competition, which is you know, at the center of the show. We thought the really the kind of sick thing was we were taking it all the way down to almost like the embryonic. It's like two yeah. people have come out of the same womb. And he says that horrible line to her, which was like, you know, sometimes I, we were born in the same womb, only one of us was going to make it out. You know, we thought that that it was, there's all this mirroring going on in the episode. It's almost like I sometimes think when I watch those scenes back, and we didn't conceive of it like this, but when, when we watched it back, it's almost like she's talking to a mirrored version of herself, the one who opted in and the one who opted out. Yeah. Um, and there's a dark, there's, and you know, there's a deliberate echo of, she echoes her brother's line at the end of the episode. She says, maybe you don't like what you're looking at. Um, as she's standing next to Eric. As she's standing <laughs> next to Eric. And it's like, you know, it was all those things. It was the, it was the, pri- you know, He's actually vulnerable in that moment in the elevator because he's coming from the from the mental health services floor. She sees him. He looks like a sort of weak husk. And it was we felt like it was thematically the most clear declaration of everything the show was trying to do in one episode, wouldn't you say, Mick? Yeah, 100%. Just out of interest, did you pick up on that he was coming out of Pierpoint Services? I didn't. Yeah, because everyone we've spoken no. to, no one we've spoken to has picked up on that. But no. I didn't think he was coming out of a good day at work. Okay. Yeah, okay. You know yeah, what I mean? Like he's well. he. I just figured he had just been completely shattered by... Both thinking about cheating on his wife, but also like just absolutely getting assassinated. And that, that was funny because like I was going to start this conversation by talking about smoking because I loved that like the cigarette pack is essentially the, like the central motif of the fourth episode. And the idea that this guy thinks he's digging up these cigarettes because he's this badass and he's about to get back on the street and take over like his department again. And at the end, that cigarette pack is like the last cigarette you get before you're shot. You know what I mean? Like the one that they give you before you're assassinated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I knew where he was when he was getting in, but I didn't know he was getting back from from the health services. It's really funny the way that we conceived that episode because there were different versions of Eric's journey in the episode. And there was like the sort of, the one that had loads of obstacles, which some of them he overcame and then some of them he didn't. And what we ended up with was sort of, slow march to death yeah it's like a funeral dirge as soon as you see him digging up that rose bush which is how we actually wrote it in the script yeah. it feels like he's basically digging at his own grave yeah, yeah. which was I, I think in some way I think it actually is quite effective but in some yeah. ways it feels sort of like an inevitability in a yeah. way that isn't very dramatic no I think so I think so when we look back at that episode we like we're super proud of it and like Ken is phenomenal in it and we wrote it very specifically because we knew Ken could go there. Right. And we hadn't sh- we hadn't allowed the audience to see that in him in the show yet. But yeah, it is. I mean, it it is kind of there is a. I I, I mean, I, I love the episode, but it, it does feel like, as Mickey says, like a slow decay towards an inevitability. Well, which... When you get to the end, if you go back to the beginning, there's something kind of pathetic about him wearing the pure point sweatshirt because mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like a guy who won't take off his high school football uniform. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Absolutely. And he's like living off of his old glories, like. I love the fact in, and we're going to jump back and forth between mm-hmm. four and five because I wanted to keep talking about the brother scenes in five. The, you guys are doing drugs this season. You guys are doing drugs. You guys are <laughs> depicting like, drug use this season <laughs> much closer to the way like Scorsese talks about doing violence. It's like, I don't mind indulging in the romance of it, but you have to have the consequences. Mm-hmm. You have to have, now you have to go fucking dig a hole for this body. And there was something about the scene where Harper's brother is doing Crystal and she almost like sadly acquiesces to do it with him. And it doesn't seem to even have that much of an effect on her. She's so heartbroken about it. Can you talk to me a little bit about how you, because, you know, obviously the show has a reputation for being this like hard partying depiction of these people. But like between Yaz, the Harper brother plot, like it does seem like you're reckoning with it a lot. It's a little bit more of a Sunday morning thing. Yeah, it's it's funny that you said no, we did actually think about does the show's reputation for, you know, a hard partying show as a lot of drug taking, would that actually dull? the moment when Harper takes meth. And some of the executives at HBO said, like, it's just, it's more drugs. And the way that we try to execute it is that it feels like, you know, there's absolutely zero fun in that moment. I mean, I think in all the other drug-taking moments, there's there's sort of a degree of fun. Even if you can look at it, you can look at it through, from objectively and think, okay, wow, that's uh, that's kind of like that person searching for oblivion. But in the moment, that character is actually enjoying it. Whereas this one, neither of them are enjoying it. They're there because they're, they... Well, he's almost like, I'm showing you how bad this is. Yeah, exactly. exactly. That's that's what what he's doing. He's saying, fuck it. When he's in that kitchen, he says, okay, fuck it. It's like, I'm trying to tell you how bad it was for me and what the consequences of that were. You're not listening to me, Harper. Because so you never have. You never have. Right. No one did. So I'm going to show you firsthand and you're going to do it with me and you're actually going to feel it. Yeah. And then maybe you have some empathy because you're actually be feeling what I felt. Right. 
But yeah, I think the consequences in the drugs is something that I think it feels more... It's funny though, because I, we were always conceived in this season Yasmin as the one that is, you know, has a habit that's turning into something that could be considered a, an addiction. But I've, you know, I've seen some people have pointed out that it feels more like actually that Harper is the one that's searching for oblivion through drug taking. Because, yeah. you know, it, all the times that Harper takes drugs, in this, in the, she's always doing them with someone else. Where I always considered it sort of just like something that she was doing through proximity. Yeah. But actually, she's actually taking drugs a fair bit. Yeah, like, and she's and she's she's using them as a crutch, and she's using them. As, Conrad, you were speaking about this before, which is like the show in some ways, and Harper's, you know, attitude to work is like she's always hitting a sort of dopamine hit button. Yeah. And I feel like in this season, she's doing that in every single aspect of her life. Yeah, she's taking drugs, she's getting horny off drugs, she's using Robert for sex, having sex in the morning. Exactly. Yeah, um, I think just show, I, I don't know the consequences of drugs is. I think the depiction of them in the first season was so casual and I think some people were very shocked by that. Yeah. And it's not like we didn't have any consequences. I feel like Robert... No, Rob especially. Robert has consequences but I think in season two it's it's just about showing that there are consequences to that kind of behavior. And also maybe I had my, my, my father-in-law his voice ringing in my ears when he said like <laughs> all these people deserve to be in jail. <laughs> <laughs> the part, I mean, like you mentioned, yes. I mean, I think that that has definitely been what's been so great about Marissa's performance this year is like she can kind of hold it together. Like she is obviously somebody who you wouldn't look at and be like, oh, I bet like this person's like running out of rope here. Like she, but when she shows up to the pub party for the publishing house and he's like, are you fucking high? Like in the middle of the day, that's just a great, like, oh, like we actually are in her second half of Goodfellas moment here. <laughs> like it is spinning out of control yeah. for her. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the, uh, her cocaine use. I think was it felt sort of quite realistic to us the way it was the way it was parceled out. It's like, and then we had, me and Mickey had this quite long conversation about whether we should ever see her do it at work. Right. But I think I think the insinuation is that she's kind of always either about to do it or coming off it, and when and there's no real clean divide between her, uh, her social life and her work life. Mm -hmm. um, Definitely. Yeah. And and, and uh, have you spoken to you about uh, with you previously about what has brought her to that place? And you know, in season one. She does take coat once in episode seven. And there was actually a line where um, Seb, her boyfriend at the time, said to her, have you ever done this before? And he, she said, no, I haven't. And then did it. Oh, and that wow. was actually, the, in our conception of her, that was the first time she had done it. Yeah. And we got rid of the line because, I don't know why we got rid of that line. I actually. can't remember. I felt like, probably maybe time. It felt like, yeah, probably, <laughs> literally, honestly, probably time. But I was thought of her as someone that was quite, you know, goody two-shoes, obviously has this weird relationship with her privilege, means that, meaning that she probably didn't want to be seen as someone that, you know, indulged that part of her psyche yeah. by taking drugs. And yeah. like, and that's something that she's obviously done in between the two seasons and during the pandemic. She's, she's you know, she's, um, she's lent into that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, moving among kitchens, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. exactly. That, and I, I honestly think that's changed her, that has changed her personality. 100%. Like, yeah. and, and made her the person she is for season two. That negotiation she has with, in the first season all the time, of how much should I... I'm privileged. I need to hide my privilege. I need to be a totally different person at work. That's t that, you know, the, that, the main sea change in her between the two seasons is like, no, this is who I am. I'm going to lean into it. Do you guys? Do you guys like? You, you were asking me about whether I noticed it was the mental health services. There's a couple of. I also thought that the moment where Yaz comes over to Harper's apartment, obviously, and, and she immediately puts out lines, and Harper's like, "Well, we are celebrating the bonuses." And she's like, oh, yeah, we are, right? And I thought for a second that was because she didn't get one. Like, she had been fucking up at work, or maybe she was trying to make this two floors thing happen. But are we supposed to understand that she did get her bonus? It just doesn't matter to her because of her personal wealth? Yeah, that's yes. how we, we thought of it. It's like, she got paid. I mean, and she, like that is the, the amount that she was getting paid in, in uh, relation to how much money she already had would not warrant her celebration. Sure. Yeah. In that mind. It has a slight... <laughs> It has an all. There is a, pl a slight plot point to it that comes out in episode eight as well. Okay, which is it's a very subtle link, but it's it's kind of linked to it. I love the fact that like even though these people are obviously now in this supposed to be like I mean, what what does Harper talk about? And, like the first episode of the show is the meritocracy of the the nature of this business that they're in. It, it almost seems like in season two, some of the class stuff, some of the stuff about their like where they're from is starting to like kind of rear its head a little bit more. And you're almost allowed. Have you allowed yourselves to? bring more of those things from their home lives in, you think? Definitely. I think so, yeah. I mean, yeah. This, the show is, I mean, everyone keeps saying this and 
um, was said this on the Prestige TV podcast that the sh- everything about the show is based on class. Yeah. And that actually, I'm glad that the American audience is picking up on that because I think that was something that we were not worried about, but thought that the American audience would not latch onto as well as the British audience would. I mean, like in the press we've done, done a little bit of press or starting to do the press uh, for the UK release and every single person we've spoken to has just latched onto the fact that it's right. all about class. And there was an amazing comment, I think, Conrad, you sent it to me on, I think it was the AV Club or something, yeah. and someone saying that this is basically like the equivalent of a Victorian novel. <laughs> yeah. Which is everything we wanted to I do. I mean, we were always, the thing is funny because me and Mickey always find ourselves across whether it's industry or other stuff we've done or have done in the past, it always seems to be the thing we keep going back to in terms of write about, especially when we're writing contemporary drama. And I'm not, I'm not really sure where that comes from. But um, yeah, it seems to be. Aside from being English. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. I guess so. <laughs> yes, But you know, the thing that's cool about it is that a lot of the voices in the show are American. You know, I mean, you're, t- you're writing for Eric, you're writing for Harper, you're writing for Jesse this season. How do you put yourself in that voice? Like I don't know that we've talked about this before, but question. do you find? I think I think it's I think it's I think it's the, just the it's cut the culture we grew up in, and from a very young age, the films we watched, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. I think that's that's a big function of it. I think sometimes, I think sometimes we can maybe get it wrong a little bit around. There was this whole thing I saw on some on some Twitter thread about behove and behoove, <laughs> and actually it's really funny because Ken Leong, when we were shooting that, he was like you know I'm pronouncing it the British way and we were like yeah and he's like was that because I've been in Britain for a, a, a decade or something in the first scene of the whole thing he says CV instead of resume yeah, I thought okay actually that was a mistake that was us <laughs> not writing the character correctly but it actually feels like actually something that an MD that had been working in London for like 10 years would start to say yeah. start to call it a CV yeah yeah no absolutely a, um, there was one thing like we had Jamie O'Brien on this season who was incredibly helpful she was um uh, around the show with us and she every, the one thing that she always used to do when she got the script is change got to gotten yeah <laughs> every single time it's like, control still, F yeah, got. exactly it's like I mean, how, many, how many times have they said got instead of gotten so be, speaking of the Americans on this show I wanted to talk a little bit about Jay who is great in the first episode but then is like is superb in the f- subsequent episodes especially I mean, even his disembodied voice at the end of episode three is like, you ever fucking click out of call on me? Like, I love that. Did you shoot him sequentially and did he kind of grow into the character of Jesse? 100%. 100%. I think he was still figuring out in the first episode. Especially, I think the first scene he did was the one in the hotel bar. Not the hotel bar, sorry. The uh, When they had breakfast. Yeah, when he's reading the FT. And he's definitely still figuring out how to play the character. Yeah, um, he's he, he's kind of we, we what, what was the delight of getting someone of his caliber to play the role was people's um expectations and their kind of learned uh what's the word what they've seen of him in the past effectively mm-hmm. and he he gave he has a kind of obviously inherent likability affability and it gave a warmth to the character which made it very hard to place what his direct intentions were um which is really good for how hopefully how the season plays out but he he I think he sort of he, I don't know whether he d- deliberately did this, but he he started to sort of carry himself slightly differently, he does. And, and look look slightly older, and and it, it was I don't know he he found the character somehow. It was in like a slouch and a way he held his held his head, and it's it's a very it's it's a you know it, it feels almost like counterintuitive casting in in a lot of ways, but I think it was one of the big, biggest successes of the second season. Yeah, I mean the the bird shoot see, yeah. like episode obviously lets him kind of become himself in that, but like I just thought. He was just extraordinary. But, in that but we we realized actually. I mean, I think we'd written a lot of two. No, we we would start. We'd started to really polish up the dialogue on two o three by the time we'd cast him, and we lent into that kind of puckish, kind of mischievous, mischievous yeah. energy that he has. And like we started to write dialogue that's, that we thought would suit his voice, right? Um, without ruining it in episode 6 though he, he has a big episode in that and there's a turn in that episode which I think with the prejudices you have against J.D. Plass and the way that characters he played before and the thing that Conrad was saying which is sort of the mischievous sort of nature of that character that you've seen in, in episode 3 like there's a turn that he does in 6 which I think is just like cold as ice so oh, good God, I can't so wait um, I want to ask you guys a little bit about Michael Mann because <laughs> I'm man-pilled, so maybe I can't, I can't see it, but I know I saw you on Instagram putting up Heat 2, the book, and we talked a little bit about how that scene in 2 or 3 was supposed to feel like the bank robbery. Oh, no, the end of 2 was end supposed two, to feel yeah. like the bank robbery. And then I think I lost my mind and started talking about Manhunter when we were talking about one of the episodes recently. 
it feels like Nathan's music has evolved this year and kind of has a little bit of like the Tangerine Dream vibe of like early Michael Mann movies. But I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the non sort of like written influences on this season and whether or not they were different from the first season or whether or not you guys were looking for feelings like like the bank robbery. When, when you say non-written, what do you mean? You like mean just, just like, like cinematic rather mm. than like, oh, well, we want it to feel like a Victorian novel or yeah. whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Very good question. I mean, the influences are actually the same between the two seasons. Yeah. It's just that I think we we Execute. executed them closer <laughs> exactly. to the, the version that we wanted. That's right. Like Jamie O'Brien again, she said that in season one, we were reaching for something. And hopefully, I think in season two, we've come slightly closer to grasping it. I mean, the references are the same. We always talk about the same stuff. We talk about... Moneyball. Moneyball. Social yeah. network. Really, we have some weird kind of kids, Larry Clark film. Yeah. James White. It's a film not many people have seen. It's excellent. It has... Very good clubbing sequences, very good like young people living in big city sequences. Girls, mm-hmm. obviously a very big influence on the show. Peep show. Peep show, enormous influence on the show. Um, um, but there, there are certain things that we think, like you said this before, Con, but like when we're watching the dailies and we're in the edit or we're, or we're in the edit, we're like, oh God, that looks like Bennett Miller. That looks like, <laughs> like That really gives us, gives us um, a little bit. Also like Mick, I mean, Mick is, Mick is, we're, bit, we're both aesthetes or whatever. Is that the right word? Like obviously like really obsessed with the way the show looks, but yeah. Mick to like a perfection. Is, I, that's why I love working with him because he's got such a perfectionist eye for stuff. He's kind of a bit finchery in the way he like, oh, that's not quite right. <laughs> and um, the look of the show is obviously we're obsessed with it and we're so, we wanted it to feel incredibly textured. And obviously we don't shoot on film. Yeah. Because like, but it know. feels different this season. Yeah, yeah. And it was, and it was kind of like, it was about, uh, it was about bringing up the saturation of the Bloombergs, crushing all the blacks in the grade, making it feel like, you know, you talk about um, Michael Mann, and I'm not saying in any way looks like this, but like for me, the best looking film ever, or one of his Thief. Yeah. And it's that kind oh of like... And, that's and, and, that, hardly... Con- yeah. yeah like, and you can see, and it's, 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 it's like, you see it in the Safdie Brothers' work as well. It's yeah. kind of what me and Mickey call it. Like, it's almost like heightened reality. So it's like super lived in, visceral, but also just looks like incredible. Like it just looks like the sort of life you want to be living, you know? Yeah. And then when, so then when you do pull the rug out and you have Harper smoking crystal in the morning, you're like, oh fuck, this is really bad. Mm -hmm. Like this, it feels bad. It's gray out. It's like this. I mean, you even imagine that it's this German sky. Mm -hmm. Do you, did you get to go to Berlin? Yeah. Yeah, we did. We didn't actually film that scene there. (laughs) (laughs) We filmed that scene in Wales. We found a sort of a... You should um, tell me that you shot it on the volume (laughs) on the Mandalorian stage. (laughs) We found a skyline that looked a little bit like Berlin. I think they did a really good job. Amazing. Amazing. Um, But yeah, we did get to go to Berlin, which was very, very fun. Did you do the club scenes there? We did the outside of the club scene. Okay. So there's a really famous club in Berlin called Watergate, um, which was the inspiration for the club. Obviously, we were saying it was there. Yeah. Um, And they've got... It's on the river and there's this... um, amazing sort of smoking area outside which no one ever uses actually because everyone smokes inside clubs <laughs> right <laughs> and then the reason we chose this is because we thought it was really cinematic because across the water there's this huge neon universal sign like universal studios oh wow and when we were filming there we were like okay we've got to get that sign in and our producer edo was like i'm not sure we're actually allowed to get that in. <laughs> which is really it was hard this is a warner brothers company it's especially given what happens in that episode i think that like what, yeah, yeah it's funny it's one of our one of our when we came to make the show you're talking about all trojan horsing like a millennial or a young person show in or whatever like mickey and i were just obsessed with getting a good clubbing clubbing scene yeah. on, on screen and like we tried it in season one and then we were just like we just like we've got to do it we had this amazing new director called Caleb Femi who, who's uh, never directed TV episode. and he did five right he did five, he did five, five and, and six. six okay and his, to be I mean the club scene I think in Berlin is just fantastic you know, there's this great there's this great Mia Hansen love film called Eden mm-hmm. love it really good movie has incredible club scenes in it and we were like we've got to do our version of that and like Mick came up with this brilliant idea which I think the social network does or something where basically you just you kill the internal dialogue in the scene yeah so it's like so so you can't hear the characters and you subtitle it and it's like that is the experiential experience of being in a club like you yeah. have to scream in people's ears um, I have so, to admit though I stole well, we, have a, we have a great friend who was a writer on season 2 of industry called Joseph Charlton and he he, he had a play on the um, in the West End called Anna X with Emma Corrin and Naban actually from season 1 and they they just had that that idea oh, it's like <laughs> it was you amazing. just see the text it was the like dialogue. really loud music and the text was projected on the back of the wall and I thought yeah, that's so the cool. best version of a club because as Conrad said when you're in those clubs they're just like you know very numbingly loud, loud the funny thing is though with the shooting of club scenes so there's this it's on YouTube, but it's basically a behind the scenes of Collateral, making yeah. Collateral, and then the the Koreatown club scene that's yeah. in Collateral. And 
they have like them shooting it so there's no music playing. Yeah. And it's all these people just dancing as Tom Cruise like yeah. somersaults across the, the floor. The really disconcerting thing is they have to, because I was there on the day we were shooting that, they have to cut the, they play the music so everyone gets into it, into the vibe. And then they, and then they, 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 they like, have to cut. drop out. And what you hear is you just, just hear like, the bang, yeah. bang, bang, bang of people's feet going left to right. It's like the audio step. version of the lights coming on at the <laughs> exactly. end of the night where you're just like, oh, I don't want to see people dance to no music at also, all. actors never shout loud enough no. like in pubs or in clubs. And we said like, if you if shout as if you like if you're, you're trying to deafen the person you're <laughs> acting with like if you think you're too loud you're not loud you're enough. not loud enough it's like yeah, scream yeah. it yeah. and in season one I think when we did that uh, club scene in episode one we played the music into their ears yeah um, oh which, silent disco yeah, style yeah. which was a lot easier, a lot to, easier. to act but yeah you gotta like it makes sense you gotta see the veins in their neck and stuff and yeah. otherwise you just don't get that same or like, it just looks like collateral exactly. which I mean like in collateral it works because then Tom Cruise like shoots up the entire Nightclub, yeah. but like, it's it's tough if you're not going to do that. Um, we didn't have that luxury. <laughs> can I ask you a little bit as uh, to do a little like transatlantic translation stuff? Because I I think I get the Gus plot this season so far, but obviously there's like things like constituencies and who Aurora is and like what mm-hmm. she sort of represents. And can you give me a little bit of like a of an explainer about like what yeah. what American audiences might not understand about like what he's doing? So. Gus is, you know, he obviously meets he meets Aurora in the shoot. Aurora is an MP, member of parliament for Croydon East, which is a fake constituency <laughs> because we don't want to get in trouble with the government. Um, and uh, That's what they would come after you yeah, for. Exactly, sure. exactly, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, It's also like, what government? <laughs> <laughs> you said that I didn't. Um, and so, and she, you know, we present her as a sort of like quite ambitious black Tory MP She's, you know, she should be in her constituency office, which is sort of like a surgery where you meet constituents, yeah. i.e., the public, and you hear the complaints at a very local level. But instead, she's on this pheasant shoot with, you know, hedge fund managers and you know, tech wizards and whatever, and like, which is just suggesting that that's sort of what she's interested in, and she's interested in using that, you know, the the, the proximity to tech and healthcare and telehealth in order to basically rise up the ranks. So in episode four, he goes to work with her. He you know, he, his expectations for working in for the Tory party and for the government are high. He thinks, okay, wow, I'm going to be in... Beyond clerical. Yeah, right? I'm going to be in the House of Parliament. It's going to be like House of Cards. It's going to, I'm going to be like walking through past these, these paintings of Gladstone and I'm going to feel like I'm starting my career in, the, in, in, you know, in power. And instead, he's put at this very junior level in a constituency office, which is, I mean, the, it was a very, this is a very, very weird um, reference. It's not weird at all, actually, but some of the scenes, I think, were kind of inspired by, uh, you know, the, the the film in the loop. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's obviously the thick of it, the film of the thick of it, I guess. <laughs> and there's a, there's a really really good sequence where obviously like, uh, who's the guy who plays him? Uh, Tom Hollander. Tom Hollander. Yeah, yeah. Tom Hollander plays like a Secretary of State, and obviously he's in Washington and he's hobnobbing with the sort of the U.S. Secretary of State, like you know the what's it called deputy whatever and then he's pulled back to his constituency office in like somewhere in the north of England to deal with a wall that's falling that's down right. with this constituent this is the whole Humpty Dumpty the, yeah, exactly, the fucking exactly. egg yeah, right. I just thought that was really funny the idea and it's it's so typical to to Britain because we have this you know the the, the way that our government works is that you are you know you are, you were elected to represent the constituents yeah Obviously, because we have that too. Yeah, you do. I guess, yeah. Apparently, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I feel like they, there's some people. Obviously, there are backbenchers in the in the in government who make that their entire life's work, and there are there are ones that you know use it as a stepping stone to bigger and better things. I I feel like in America, usually the congressperson is from the place that they are representing. That was, that was the case for a time. It's starting to get more and more common for people to just be like, oh, is there an opening there? I, I will run. Yeah, so that's it's always been like, That happens the, more in the Senate. In the UK, yeah. it's like, you know, in 2010, when David Cameron became the prime minister, or in the run-up to that, he basically had this sort of A-list of MPs, which were taken from different parts of walks of life. And he thought, okay, I'm just going to find you seats. Like, right. I'm going to put you here. You've got nothing to do with it. And that you actually end up with this system where someone from, you know, London usually is representing, you know, somewhere in like the north of Wales. Or anyway. Um, so Gus has gone to work for her. He has his expectations of what it's going to be like. It's nothing like that. This guy comes in who we, we present as this quite comic character holding a Tupperware full of shit. Uh, Gus thinks, okay, what the hell am I doing? And what we're trying to do with him is show that actually the thing he went into 
politics to do, ostensibly, originally, which is, you know, climb the greasy ladder, takes a backseat a little bit to actual public service. That's yeah. what I was going to say, is it seems like he has, like, a moment of actual, like, empathy and connection with this oh, guy. Absolutely. Totally. Absolutely. I mean, and that's the, that's the way we built the story out, is to show the kind of the stuff that Aurora is ignoring. You know, she very, she we very deliberately wrote her kind of sprinting out of there because she's had an interaction with this guy before. And as Mickey says, like, her the way she sees herself ascending and, you know, for her, the, her career is a kind of game. It's like, how quickly can I get yeah. to the top? Yeah. So, um, she's going to get like this assistant secretary cabinet position exactly. and then the next one and the next and, one. And then I think, I think, yeah, as Mick says, we were trying to show that there, we're trying to show whether Gus is the room for empathy on an individual level or, and, or whether, and whether that's going to actually be enough for him as a career and, and whether, it's, you know, as the as series wears on, you see how that, he has to, he kind of gets given quite a stark choice about that stuff. You know, the thing that's been brilliant about watching this season is I was thinking about Yaz's uh, like pandemic speech, like her, like I've been going through kitchens and buying pajamas and stuff. And you're able to do stuff that feels very relevant and contemporary, but never date yourself. And I was wondering if there were any, like, did you have any tricks when you were writing this thing? Any references to say what a character might have been doing during the pandemic, like, like, Harper living in a hotel, Yaz having this sort of partying lifestyle, to not make it feel like, oh, this is going to be out of out of date like three months after it hits Sky Atlantic or something, like what, or this will change. Because there seems to be almost like this way in which you don't reference anything that's happening like in the moment, but it is something that happened 15 minutes ago so that you feel like you're in the moment. It's a very good question, actually. I mean, we... Because that must be so hard. It, it mm. is really, it is really difficult. I mean, the, the COVID conversation was obviously a massive conversation about whether it would feel dated when, by the time it aired, and whether it feel like it was too much in the rearview mirror. And I actually really dug my heels into that. I think wrongly thinking it was still going to feel like something that was so of the world. And in fact, like because of the way culture is and because of the way people are, it fe- already feels some like it happened in a different lifetime. And I think, but we did. We also had this rule, this hard and fast rule, which was like, and actually, the so the, the the COVID experience. What we're trying to say with Yasmin versus Harper versus all these characters was that the COVID experience was was not a homogenous thing. That it was so individuated by socioeconomic circumstances, all this sort of stuff. You know, for the mega rich, it's like it barely happened. Yeah, and and, and so and so we also thought that if, if we put that on screen in any way, there was nobody who could who could watch it and say, actually, that's not what that was like. Because you know there would be an office with one guy with a mask on yeah. at any one point in time. With the economics and, and business stories, it's like we were always trying to write stuff that felt. You know, we had a very good consultant on season two who was kind of a bit of a Zorro figure and doesn't really want to be named, but he, <laughs> he, he had his ear to the ground and was like, you know, these are the things in the market that are not going away, frankly, and yeah. they will feel relevant, like structural things, or you know, there's a whole uh, storyline coming later down the season where where Amazon are involved in a purchase, and like he was like, these are things that are going to feel relevant whether we, whether the show comes out in a year or two years. Um, he literally predicted stuff. Yeah, he literally well. predicted stuff. But yeah. it's like season two could have been about crypto, and it would have been. Like slippery for you guys, right? Like if you had done like the most like like up to date. I mean, if you, almost. You, oh yeah, do you know what episode even, six is about? Yeah, is it about crypto? No, it's about Reddit. Reddit. Oh, okay. It's about GameStop or a version. Right, because yeah, yeah. we had you guys on to talk about that, and I was really, I was curious whether or not it was almost like. Okay, so I'll be fascinated to see how six comes out. Mick, can you think of any examples of stuff where we just where we took things out for timestamp reasons? I swear there are some. I just can't think of any. Uh, Boris Johnson being the Prime Minister well not- we had a big not a fight but we had a sort of back and forth with <laughs> Jane Tranter who was uh, who was the CEO of Bad Wolf who's the production company that makes industry and there is a scene in episode four where mm-hmm. um, there's a sort of slow pan up to a picture of a raw the MP with a guy who <laughs> actually am I getting in trouble for this <laughs> I don't think so. A bloke in a blonde wig. I always forget that the libel laws in England are like yeah, really exactly. tough. They're Just because we record it here doesn't make yeah. us subject to their um, laws. It's but okay. it was, the question was, is he going to be the is Boris Johnson going to be the prime minister when this comes out? And the answer now is no. Can you imagine though, if like out of all his problems, he was like, I have to sue the fucking guys from his industry. For like, <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't surprise me. Um, but yeah, like the the COVID stuff feels like it's so well dealt with. And it also actually winds up being something that's kind of meaningful because I do think now it's like your personal experience with what happened is so weirdly individualistic. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, obviously there was a collective sort of trauma and there was an obvious like, uh, I think a real disillusionment with like institutions that came out of that that gets reflected in this show as well. 
But then there is the kind of like, I was on my personal journey and there was only the specific. And I was, did you collate those from friends? Did you kind of like just hear things on the air that would, in the wind that would make you say like, there's a girl like Yaz who's in a kitchen every night, just off her head. And then she comes home and shops online. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, I had so many different experiences of from friends, friends of friends. As Conrad says, for the mega rich, it felt like it barely happened. People were able to get out of the country somehow, you know. Right. Live uh, in their fourth home. Yeah. Right. I mean, like, you know, there was when we were at the peak lockdown, I remember seeing people on Instagram who I know who live in London, like in France. Right. Like, and I was like, how the hell did you get there? And it's like, oh, I had some sort a of private boat or whatever. Oh, yeah. yeah. Or like, I have a permit that allows me to go through Monaco or something like that. And it feels <laughs> like, like, you know, those are luxuries that most of the people, 99.9% of the people don't have. Um, and I feel like, Obviously, the show is playing in a sort of a, a, a place where privilege is kind of at the surface. But and we're, we we were going to go s- through that Jamie Henson character, Jay, from episode four. We were going to show actually what the flip side of that was a little bit. Yeah. And unfortunately, we didn't have much time. Yeah, no, absolutely. It. I mean, we really, the second season through Yasmin's story, we were really, it felt like we were kind of writing about privilege in her story in season one. But in season two, we were like, right, this is a story about a woman and her privilege in the world. So we and that's the main reason we decided to put her father on screen. You were asking earlier about like why you, why bring these people, why bring their families into the picture at all. And you know, I think Yasmin's relationship with her dad explains so much about the way she sees herself, her relationship to her own femininity, her sexuality, but also just her relationship to what she expects from life and what she expects to be given to her. Right. Um, so. I think people have been a little bit, I mean, people are saying, wow, she is really on one this season. I mean, like she's she's in her villain era to use that colloquialism. <laughs> but she's, I feel like as soon as you see her dad, it's not like we, we you know, we we don't forgive all her foibles when we see him, but we they, they do explain, he does explain a lot. I mean, the first yeah. thing he says, Marisa picked up on this actually, which I thought was really smart. She First thing he says when she comes in is, wow, you look great. You know, we're suggesting that he hasn't seen her for you know months and months and months. And the first thing he says is, first thing he does is comment on her appearance. Yeah, I don't. I don't think that she's a villain at no. all. I mean, I did, I didn't read it that way. I think that she's falling apart. But mm-hmm. like, I mean, it's just I think that even in the way that she's casting about to kind of have these cathartic moments where she keeps looking for like, I mean, obviously connection. I mean, this is the thing about the show that's so cool this year is that. It starts with how these people are all defined by their work and how they perform at work and how they're being evaluated at work. And then the second season is like, they all have to go home, you know? <laughs> and they all have to kind of figure out whether or not their fathers care about them or their brothers care about them or if they don't have anybody there. Um, I guess the last thing I wanted to ask about is like, I have to, to ask about the smoking again. So when I come here to London, I always notice that there seems to be like a habit of Every single person before they go into work burns one incredibly hard. It looks like the Matthew McConaughey and True Detective like <laughs> smoking and looking at the phone really quick thing. <laughs> and then each character in the show smokes differently and smokes at different times. Am I reading too much into it or was there ever any discussion of this is how Eric smokes, this is how Harper smokes, this is how... Or is it just like natural? I don't know. It feels like for for, for Eric and Harper, it's a bit of a valve release, isn't it? Yeah, it's absolutely. Just like, yeah. It's like whew, an exhalation. Yeah. It's usually, I mean, the fact that they keep bumping into each other in the smoking area probably suggests that they're actually, maybe one's waiting for the other. That's <laughs> <laughs> so um, a convenient screenwriter device yeah, as well. Yeah. You can always bring them together when, when, when you're right. the I mean, That's the greatest thing about smoking in general. Even yeah. when also, they also, it also, it look like There's something fundamentally really cinematic about people Blasting darts. Yes. I think it just looks good. Yes. something like it looks cool. Like I, I don't, I don't know. I think it's like a. I, it feels very retro in some ways because actually, we, me and Mickey were a um, we were at a music festival last weekend and or two weekends ago was it? Mick, I can't remember. I was. I remember very vividly looking around and thinking, "I'm a crowd of what 700 people mm-hmm. or something." So I'm the only one smoking a cigarette. I was like, "That is bizarre." Are you serious? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I feel like every other fucking crowd, person is very young crowd. Very young crowd. Oh, it's like it's more of a health kick now. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. I yeah. I feel like I feel like the only people who smoke are posh people now. <laughs> <laughs> and they seem they tend to smoke inside as well. I mean yeah. if if I'm trying to think of anyone smokes inside in season two of industry. I'm thinking that's something something definitely Yasmin would do. Yeah. Or allow you know, Yeah, I was thinking. That was she, when it was an absolute rap for me, is when I started smoking inside. 
Really? Yeah, I met a girl and we and she smoked indoors and I was like, we could do this. And she was like, yep. Yeah. And I was like, let's just sit here. Let's just like sit here and smoke. And that's when I went from like two a day to ten a day. I haven't had a cigarette for like seven years. It was it was when we were at, me and Conrad were at the Edinburgh Festival. We had a play on, and I didn't really smoke. I smoked like socially, and I smoked on holiday. And like if I had a couple of drinks, I'd smoke. And I think I smoked like thirty in a day. And I was like, I just never. <laughs> never and I woke up and I was I felt awful. They it might have been like the four bottles. They of wine may hang over so bad. It was that's, awful. That's, 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 I know. Yeah. yeah, they're so good. They're delicious. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been a positive uh, <laughs> health and wellness yeah, podcast exactly. with Mickey That's... and Conrad. Um, thank you guys so much for coming in. This Pleasure. was awesome. It was really good to do this with you guys in person. So much fun in person. Thank you for having us. Thank yeah. you.